Morning, everybody. My name is Jeff Birch. Like a tree, except with a U, B-U-R-C-H. My wife, Brenda, and I have been going to church here for 30 years. It was 30 years in September of 1993 that we walked in. They were actually meeting at O'Gorman at the time. So it was in transition, and we had bought this land. We're in the process of building this church. And this church finally got completion, I think, in December. But we walked in to O'Gorman, to, to the you know auditorium there, and we sat down, and uh, the Weekings were right in front of us. The Benders were right to the right of us. Um, we met the Browns on the way in, and we just got involved in this church, and it's been a joy to us ever since. This has been a blessing. Um, very much a blessing. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the teaching, the camaraderie, the fellowship, friendships, the encouragement we get here. And um, so it's 30 years, but Brent and I have been here. We've raised our kids in this church, and a few of our kids are with us today. I really appreciate the encouragement we receive. So um, I'm going to start us off with a little bit. We'll, ju- we'll just start out in prayer and then I got a few words to say about what we're going to be doing here for the next few months. So, dear Lord, we come to you in prayer. We just thank you for, um, you are a, a great and awesome and mighty God. How beautiful is the blood of Christ and how beautiful are your words. And we want to study those words so that you give us salvation and sanctification we pray that we would seek that above all things. Help us to do that, Lord. We pray us in your name. Amen. So I'm going to start out with a little bit of a baseball terminology. So Randy Anderson uh, taught last fall. He's the starting pitcher. He's the Nolan Ryan, Justin Verlander, uh, Roger Clemens, you know, that type of guy. He comes in. He's your ace. So it's the seventh inning. If it's the seventh game of the World Series, Randy Anderson's the ace. We got a lot of good pitchers in this church. I don't know that I'm one of them, but I'm here. So, but Randy's a starter, right? And the starter uh, in baseball terminology, right? I've always, I disagree with the managers today because they always want to yank them out and put, you know, they overmanage, right? I always want to just be left in the game. So it was like the seventh inning in my game that I, I played in high school and college and amateur. and So if the coach comes out, I give up a hit in the seventh inning, I see the coach leaving the dugout coming towards me. Oh, no, no, stay where you're at. Stay where you're at. I don't need to come out, right? But they, you know, want to take guys out. So, so as far as Randy Anderson goes, you know, being the starter, here's the starter's job. You need to get through at least two times through the lineup and get into the third time through the lineup before, because they start timing you is what happens that third time up, right? And so that's, that's your five innings, six innings, maybe seven if you're really, really good, right? That's kind of the starter. By the time you get to that third time through the lineup, maybe they'll start timing you, and that's when they look for the next guy. Well, so that's Randy. So he started the game last fall, right? So this spring, later in the spring, though, we got the closer. That's Jim Power. Jim Power is going to teach here probably a couple months at the end of the semester here, end of the year, school year. And your closer is your big guy, and he just throws gas right down the middle. 
one time through the lineup, maybe inning, inning a third, inning two thirds, you just eat it, right? Right down the middle. And all you have to do is get those guys out, and that's your closer, right? Well, that's what Jim Power is, right? And then you got the middle reliever. That's me. I'm the middle reliever. The middle reliever is a guy kind of like the backup right fielder or the backup first baseman. Nobody knows your name. It's not like Cheers. Nobody knows your name. You're just kind of the middle reliever guy, right? You, you, it's like the fifth or sixth inning. Coach gives you the ball. You're ahead three to zero. What's your main job? Don't screw it up. <laughs> when you're done, we need to be ahead three to zero or four to zero, but you just don't screw it up, right? So that's kind of what that middle reliever does. I kind of like, we all have our passions in life, right? Things we enjoy. I loved capital L, capital O, capital, capital letters, loved baseball when I was a kid. My dad played. My older brothers did not, so it gave me more of a chance to shine that my brothers didn't do. They were very good basketball players. So I really, really enjoyed it. And I, went, I graduated in 1984 from high school, so this was right when I was starting like pitching in high school as a pitcher. And that's right when the... Randy complains about his Cubs. The Milwaukee Brewers, where I grew up in Wisconsin, have only made it to the World Series once. That was 1982, my sophomore year, and they lost in Game 7 to the Cards. Want me to recite you every pitch from the each game? I could do that for you if you want me to. But I can tell you this, in the outfield is Ben Ogilvie, Gorman Thomas, Charlie Moore, infields Paul Malter, Robin Yount, Jim Gantner, Cecil Cooper, Ted Simmons caught... Ted, uh, Cecil, uh, let me see, Jim Gantner batted 298. He was the only infielder below 300. They lost in game seven. That's the way it goes, right? So pitchers were Mike Caldwell, Pete Vukovic, Don Sutton, uh, and Moose Hawes. Okay, so they lost in game seven. I remember that because I was in the middle of just starting to love it and play the game. But what I really, really enjoy, and I still watch some of it now. I don't watch it all the time. But when it comes to playoffs, a World Series, I just can't help it. I just turn it on, I grab that remote and turn it on, right? So I don't know if you guys saw any from this year, but, and I'm not a big Diamondback fan because they beat my Brewers, right? But they hit, they lost uh, in the World Series. They upset the Brewers. They upset the Phillies. Um, they beat Bryce Harper. And from the Philly, that was so fun to watch that. Bryce Harper is one of the better hitters in the, in the league, right? But he is so an uh, unlikable person. Anyway, uh, if you're watching the game, game two of the World Series is the only game the Diamondbacks won. They hit a, a pitcher named Merrill Kelly. And everybody likes to watch uh, home runs, triples off the wall, running bases, stealing, bunts, everything, right? They all want... Not me. I like defense. I like pitching. So when I watch the game, every single pitch, I'm anticipating what he's going to throw based upon the situation. And in game two of the World Series, Merrill Kelly, a 35-year-old guy from the Diamondbacks, who's probably their best pitcher, he, the, it was the only game they won. They beat the Rangers, and he had complete command. Like, he had the Rangers, like, eating out of his hand. Every pitch, curveball on the outside corner, slider off the corner, they swing and miss, fastball that cuts in. It was just so fun to watch. And if you watch it, I enjoyed that ball hitting the catcher's mitt and that smack that everybody in the, it, it, you know, could hear. 
that's the most enjoyable part. And a swing and a miss is great, but a called third strike is where it's at. So you have the umpire who's part of the game, and when you get a called third strike, this is what they do. You get your basic calls, right? So this is the called third strike. You ready for this one, right? So you get down behind there, the catcher like this, and you, first of all, you get the punch, right? So he hits the catch a bit, ha! like that, right? That's the punch. That's the first one. So that's just kind of your basic called third strike. But then you got the lawnmower. You've seen the lawnmower before? You see that called third strike, ha! Like that, see? You get the lawnmower pull, like this. And then you got the double punch where you go strike three, like this. But that's, that's batter on that side. The batter is there, you go strike three. So watching the umpires is more fun than watching the game sometimes. But So that's Randy. He started the game. I'm the middle reliever, Jim Power. But today we're going to start the book of Ephesians, and that's going to be our study. And I bought two books to help me. First one's called uh, You're Richer Than You Think. It's a commentary in Ephesians, written by Erwin Lutzer. I'm starting this one. I've gotten into this one. And then another one called Be Rich by Warren Worsby. Um, And this one is really helpful. So if you want to follow along, so to speak, this is going to be kind of my outline of pacing it, if that makes sense, as far as where we're at and stuff like that. So Be Rich by Warren Worsby. Notice the um, verbiage or the words for the titles is rich as a financial advisor. It's kind of attractive to me. But I, I do remember this incident when I was younger. I grew up on a dairy farm, and we had two key people in your life were the milkman, because he came every two days, and he had to empty the milk tank because you have to fill it back up. So rain, snow, sunshine, didn't matter. He had to be there, right? And the other one that was on speed dial, even though we didn't have a speed dial back then, was your veterinarian. Because if you had a sick cow, my dad had high-priced cows, if you had a sick cow, that veterinarian had to be there right, right now. So we had a vet, veterinarian named Dan, called him Dan the Man, Dan Goller. And he was like part of the family, right? So he was out there. He got done with all the cow checkups one day. I was probably eight years old. And I was sitting outside, and he was out there scrubbing his boots off, talking to my dad. And I'm standing next to his nice, brand-new, shiny pickup. I said, I said, Mr. Goller, he said, yes, Jeff. I said, are you rich? He said, yes, I'm rich at heart. I remember that from how many years ago, right? So it wasn't monetary he was thinking about. It was about something else. And we're going to find out something about richness when we read Ephesians. One of the things we have to do whenever we study a book like this is ask the right questions. We can have all the right answers, but if there's the wrong question up front... We don't have the right answers. So here's the, what are the right questions to ask when we have a book study like this, right? First of all, who wrote it? Okay? Who wrote the book of Ephesians? And what about that person would you know? And why is that important? Okay? So let's say you're having a conversation with somebody and uh, you, someone says to you, hey, I was talking to this guy the other day, 
And he said that you need to buy more life insurance. You say, who is that? Well, the guy's name is Jeff Birch. Well, that makes sense that Jeff would say that. That's where he works. And the next conversation you have, well, I was talking to somebody the other day, and he said, you need to read your Bible every day. Funny, Randy advertised that today. The guy's talking to is Randy Anderson. So if, if that comment came from Randy, you know the source, right? How about this? I think you should uh, lift weights every day. Who said that? Jeremy Cron. That makes sense, doesn't it? Everybody, Jeremy would say something like, so you know where the source is, and so you know the message, and you know they're completely related, right? It makes complete sense in your mind that that's where that came from. So who wrote it? We're going to talk about Saul turning into Paul. We're going to talk about that. And then to who did he write it to? One of my most treasured possessions is a series of letters that were handwritten by my grandpa back in 1920, 1919, 1927, 1936. They're all dated. And they're written on half-size paper, so they're like this size. And my grandpa moved from Lockport, Illinois, up to Sheldon, Wisconsin. I think, I can't, 1917, 1920, some of the kids were born yet. My dad had not been born yet. But he used to write letters back to his dad, so my great-grandpa Henry, back in Illinois, and tell him how life was going. And they are... They are interesting on steroids. It was just, and you could just see the whole dialogue of what's important to him. I am started clearing this land. Mabel's doing fine. The kids are doing fine. And then you find out about the neighbors. Some you like, some you don't like, right? Some Stuff like that. And it goes through all that. And then he gets to the point where, like if this letter was written in December, for example, he'd get to the point and say, and now to the real stuff. And he would tell a deer hunting story that would take three pages. So you could tell what was the most important thing on Ralph Haynes' Birch's mind back in 1923, and that was deer hunting. And, but, but these letters weren't written to me. They are written to his dad and his mom. But we can glean. I can, I can read those letters, and I can glean from those what was very, very important to Ralph Birch just by reading those letters. And yes, that's a small piece, right? But it's very obvious to me when you read those what's going on in their lives and what's the highlights, right? Maybe even the lowlights. And then what did he say? So we're going to go through who wrote the book of Ephesians, who did he write it to, and then what did he have to say uh, as, as a complete picture here. Um, so who's the original source in the book of Ephesians? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue here, and I just got some pieces here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start at the very, very, very beginning of this, of where this all comes from. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 16, says, All Scripture. Now, Paul, when he writes this, isn't aware that the New Testament would be compiled and that this letter would be part of that New Testament. He's not aware of that. But he does say all scripture. 
So is that a foretelling? Probably. All scripture is what? Breathed out by God. In other words, he is the author. All scripture is breathed out by God and is what? Profitable. What's it profitable for? Teaching. For reproof. Reproof means finding fault, rebuking. You're going the wrong way. For reproof. For correction. Correction. We talk about correction being like jail, like corrections, right? Correction when I was a kid was the wooden spoon. The wooden spoon was very much a correction. My mom used to actually break wooden spoons in my behind when I was a kid, and I'd buy her more for Christmas. <laughs> Wasn't a very smart kid. And for training. So all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's the ultimate source. Paul, what is his uh, uh, part of this, right? Paul is simply a vessel. He's a conduit. He's a writer. He takes what God reveals to him, and he handwrites it, and he writes these letters. And what is his role? That's, that's his role. So God is the ultimate source, even though Paul is the one who delivers it to us. And we don't know the author of every single book in the Bible. For instance, Hebrews, we just don't know who it is. We can study that all we want. We just cannot find an author for Hebrews. For Paul, in every single letter he writes, he identifies himself right up front. I, Paul, and then and he continues to go. So what is Paul? Paul is a deliverer, a messenger, a vessel, right? And the question really becomes, kind of like when I read my grandpa's letters to his dad, does his personality come through? Absolutely. We can't subtract that from the, from the equation here. Paul's personality comes through. It's very obvious what Paul's personality is like is when you read all of his letters. It's extremely interesting to me. But the point is, is that God is in charge and Paul is a vessel. God has authority. He's in authority. And Paul is simply the messenger that d- delivers this to us. I've had various authorities in my life my dad was authority, right? So my dad was not a... He was a gentle person in a certain way, right? But he's also very authoritarian. You know exactly who was in charge of the house. You didn't have to think about it. Jim Birch was in charge of the house. When my youngest daughter was born, Emma, <laughs> and I went home, and my grandma, Brenda's mom, was helping out, and Luke was a young little lad in the house, whatever, my grandma made a comment, and Luke said, Dad is charge. <laughs> kind of like he wanted to set that straight for some reason, right? Dad is charge. When I went to Bill Camp in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, you had no question who was in charge there. No question. The drill sergeants were in charge. They owned you for the next three months, right? And I can remember an incident when I was in high school uh, again, going back to baseball, because I got asked to pitch on the amateur team, which was like a big, big 
thing for me. I was like so excited, like super excited. I get to pitch for the local town team. Like only not very many kids get asked for that. So my first game, I'm out there pitching and things are going fine. And I get behind a guy and it's two balls and no strikes. And of course, what my young mind goes to, I'm going to throw the fastball. I need to get a strike, right? So my catcher, who was 10 years my senior, played college, all his jazz, signals curveball. I shake him off. Signals curveball. I shake him off. Stands up. Timeout. Comes out to me. Says, Jeff, if you want to pitch here, when I say curveball, you throw a curveball. Is that, is that clear to you? Yes, Dan, that's clear to me. So I threw a curveball. Guy grounded out. Went back to the dugout. I looked at him. I said, fine. I got it. My opinion means nothing here. I understand that. You are. So he called every pitch. He made sh- everything. If I pick my nose, it's because he told me to. I mean, it's just, I mean, it just, he just absolutely owned me for the rest of that summer. And uh, he was in charge. He made very, very clear that he's in charge. We are not in charge of our lives. God is sovereign. God is sovereign in every way. Um, and, like, for instance, I could tell, like, last year, and most of you probably know this, that I did have a, a diagnosis of prostate cancer that has now been treated successfully with radiation. But I found out at that time, Jeff, you're not in charge of, of your life. Things will happen. And so God is completely sovereign, and he is in charge. So who's Paul? Let's explore who Paul is. I'm just curious about this guy. Uh, he's a guy who, you know, Obviously, he writes 13 of the books of the New Testament, of the 27 that are out there. So let's find out who he is, because if he's going to write this much of it, I want to know what his perspective is and where he came from. So one of the questions I've always asked myself, and maybe one of you could make me smarter in this area sometime by telling me this. Here's a question I've asked. Did Paul ever meet Jesus face to face? Did he ever run across him? Did he ever cross paths with him? I've often wondered that because it doesn't say that. And, it, and Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. He writes the book of Luke and the book of Acts. He never mentions it, so it's not worthy of mentioning. And it, my guess is it probably didn't happen, but I don't know that. I'd be curious to see if Paul or Saul at that time was ever in the audience when Jesus taught. I'd be curious, because he'd be the same age, obviously, or, or of similar age, if that makes sense. Certainly, he was an adult at that stage of his life, when, when Jesus had his earthly ministry. So I've also asked myself, was, was Saul ever present? Did he ever cross paths? Do you think how active Jesus was in walking around and teaching and preaching and healing? His name is well known. How would you not know who he is, Right? Did Saul ever run across him? Was it curious to Saul to ever run across uh, paths of Jesus? But let's just start with the first incident where we find Paul, uh, Saul. And if you want to go to this, it's in the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 6. Um, we're going to start out, we're going to start out uh, with our first introduction to Paul, but just to, just to get the background first, okay? So the apostles, the disciples are working, and the church is growing, right? And then there becomes a complaint from some of the Jews um, about 
some of the widows were not getting their fair share of a daily allotment of food. So what did the apostles do? They formed a committee, more or less, and said, choose seven men who can help with this area. And I I always find it funny, he says, it's not right for us apostles to wait on tables. And so they chose seven men to kind of take care of of these deacon-type job duties, so to speak, right? And Stephen is one of them, of those seven. So Stephen is a table waiter. That's what he is. And we'll start out with our introduction to Stephen first, and that leads us to Paul. Chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen is seized, and Stephen, full of grace and power, is doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of these who belonged to the synagogue of the freedom, as it was called, of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Sicily and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. When they secretly instigated, then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And in gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So there's Stephen, the table waiter. Okay? Doing signs, uh, great things, under the hand of Jesus. And Stephen says, and the high priest said, we'll start here. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, and then Stephen goes into this fairly long speech, basically a dissertation of the Old Testament with a Reader's Digest version. He talks about Abraham, talks about Joseph, talks about Moses, and he goes through this whole thing, basically showing his knowledge of Old Testament scripture, and that he was very well versed. Why would you do that? So that your people who are opposing you will not argue based upon that you don't know anything. So Stephen goes through this whole thing of the Old Testament, right? And we're not going to read all that, but the point is, the point is, Stephen gets done with his speech, and then he says the key words to start the fight. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's not very flattering, is it? He's throwing up, he's, he's taking the gloves off here, is what Stephen's done. And he's talking to the Jews about their opposition to Jesus and their opposition to history, Israelites' history, 
of the opposition to the prophets, right? And he just takes the gloves off and he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Well, how did they react to that? Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And here's our first introduction to Saul. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And and falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So there's our introduction to Saul. So based on that, who was Saul? Was he a coat bearer? Does he, was he the guy when you go to the party, you hand your coat to, and then you go to the party, and when you leave, you grab your coat? Is that all he is? Is he unimportant? Or was he a ringleader? Was he the anti-Christian icon, anti-Jesus icon in the Jewish system? Chapter 8 helps us understand that a little bit better. Chapter 8, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's our, that's our Saul. That's our introduction. In my business, I ask sometimes for what's called referrals or what's called favorable introductions. This is not a favorable introduction. This is our first light of who Saul is, and he seems like he's on a rampage. Okay? So... But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So that's our first introduction to Saul right there. That's what we know about him, right? Okay, so now Saul kind of disappears from the scene until we see him again in chapter 9. And this is obviously the big story, right? And this one here I do want to get into detail more. And so I'm going to do some reading and comment on this, right? But this is Saul's complete conversion. Now, when I became a Christian, I didn't have something this, of this magnitude, and you probably didn't either, right? But this is like a big deal, right? So we'll start in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And this is such an interesting turn of events. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that he may, that if he found any belonging to the way, that was a, a, 
a, a way of describing the Christians at that time was the way. I remember as a kid, I had a, a Bible on the book on the front cover. It said, the way. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This guy's on a vengeance. He's, he's on a rampage. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So that's Saul's first introduction to Jesus, point blank, face to face. Even though Jesus has been crucified and has gone into heaven, he meets Saul face to face, more or less, voice to voice, right on the road on the way to Damascus. Quite, quite the deal. Now, what happens from there? Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may, might regain his sight. And at this point, we're going to find out how famous Saul really was. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard of from many about this man. How much, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who, can, who call on your name. Saul is very well known in this arena. Everybody here knows, everybody there seems to know who he is, right? Ananias knows all about him, what he's there for, his mission, his goal, everything about him is known to Ananias. It's no secret. And I'm sure Ananias is not the only one who knew. I'm sure there was tons of people, a lot of people who knew Saul, what he was there for, and you know what his mission was. Okay, so that's our that's that's his reputation. Okay. But here's what God says. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a what? Chosen instrument? Are you kidding? He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And here's one of the most startling pieces of this. For I will show him what, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laid his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, he already calls him a brother, didn't hesitate on that one. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. He reigned his sight, and he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Now, I, you, you know, you've heard of the born again, being born again. As Christians, we are born again. And so therefore, our life changes and that our behavior changes through the sanctification process. This is what, this is what, this is blast off born again right here. 
This was like on steroids, right? Because it didn't take him long. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, just to get familiar. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. What? You came here to destroy us. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is, this not, is, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? Again, very, very well known. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Again, mission very well known. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That is dramatic turnaround. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gate day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through the opening of the wall, lowering him in a basket. Very dramatic turnaround here for Saul. Now, verse 26, it says Saul in Jerusalem, and it doesn't say in Scripture right here that there's a significant time span between verse 25 and 26, but there is. Because he does not go to Jerusalem for several years. Um, I handed out, or I should, uh, some of the the life and time, there it is right here, major events in the life of Paul. This is very interesting. Front and back, it shows all the major events that were going on. You want to steal that one, Randy? Go ahead. Um, So, so here, yeah, so here he is, right, in plotted to kill him. Saul in Jerusalem. This is several years later. So his reputation is still going with him, you'll see. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. I wonder why. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And then a final comment. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and it was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and multiplied. So there's Saul. There's our guy Saul. Now notice, his name is still Saul. Okay? His name is still Saul. And this is the guy who now writes 13 books of the 27 in the New Testament. Now, a little bit of a change here in Acts 13. I'm only going to read one verse of this. Well, Barnabas and Saul sent off. So his name is still Saul. But on uh, chapter 13, verse 9, just a, just a small commentary. Nothing big. Nothing to see here, folks. Verse 9, But Saul, who was also called Paul, notice it doesn't say a name change, Abram to Abraham, Simon to Peter, that was what Jesus changed his name for him after questioning the disciples, who does everybody say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. 
Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And he changes his name from Simon to Peter. A complete name change. Here it doesn't look like a complete name change. It doesn't appear like that, at least, right? What it appears like is like a second name. Why would you have a second name? Well, probably because under Saul, he was known as this, fire-breathing, anti-Christian, prison-you-kill-you person. And now if we name you Paul, it might just sound a little bit nicer, right? I don't know why exactly, but that's all the commentary says right here. But Saul, who is also called Paul, and then from that point forward, no more Saul. We don't read about Saul. It's all Paul. So, is it a name change? I don't know if it's a name change or not, but he's referred to as Paul from that, from that time. Okay? Now, I'm going to go back to Paul's conversion and some of the language in there as to foretelling what's going to happen. And the suffer for my name piece is what comes to me as most just striking I don't know if we know what suffering is. We do. Randy's talking about this morning about how Christians are persecuted, at least in society, verbally, in a variety of different ways, right? Well, let's take this to a whole new level. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. (laughs) We're going to talk a little bit about Paul here and what suffering for my name. Now, notice in this, this whole dialogue that he has in here, it's not even mentioned in this dialogue about the thorn in his flesh. That he talks about several times in scripture that he has a thorn in his flesh and he's asked God to take the thorn away from him three different times through prayer. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. That doesn't even, he doesn't mention that in this, in this thing right here. Paul's suffering as an apostle 2 Corinthians 11, we'll just start with verse, oh, 21. This is a resume that I'm not sure I'd want to have, (laughs) but Paul has it, right? So he's going to talk about suffering for his name. Okay, let's find out. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are the Israelites? So am I. Are the offspring of Abraham? So am I. So far, one for one. Are they servants of Christ? Ah, this is where he really gets off. I'm a better one. That's his absolute language. I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors. Far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. You and I would have given up a long time ago, preaching the word of Christ. Um, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, Dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Ouch. In toil and hardship throughout my sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And this verse is the most striking. 
And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. All these things he has going on, and he separates that peace from the physical torture. And apart from other things, a separate, he's separating here, and apart from other things, what he's called to do, there is a daily pressure on me for, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And am, I, and, and am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Ariots was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down at a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. That is like establishing credibility as far as his authority to bring this, uh, the word of God to us or to who he is writing to, again, on steroids. That is a resume that you and I will never have. We won't, we won't have. Will we see more persecution in our society? I believe we will. He received persecution and yet shows no, not an ounce of reservation about preaching the word of Christ. So we'll go back to my question. Who wrote it? Paul wrote it. Can we find a more authoritative figure for God to use outside of Saul turning into Paul? That'd be hard to imagine. It is a witness. It is a witness, and it carries a tremendous amount of authority. We have no reason to question him. Okay. Last question before we get started. Is Paul actually the author of Ephesians? It's a question to ask. And in my ESV book, it has all these commentary pages before each Bible, or before each uh, book, which is nice, because I read this, right? And under the introduction to Ephesians, there's a little blurb here about this. Pauline authorship, Pauline meaning Paul wrote it, of Ephesians was universally accepted until modern times. Today, a number of scholars claim that it was written in Paul's name by an unknown follower or imitator, and they give two main reasons for this argument. The letter's style and thought does not strike everyone as characteristically Pauline. Well, that argument floats away after a while because it is, it is characteristically, it just may not be exactly characteristically. And then the second argument is the author of Ephesians does not seem to be familiar with the letter's recipients in, in verses are 115, 3, 2, and 421, which seems odd given Paul's extended stay at Ephesus. Hmm. Later on, the author writes here, the question of Paul's apparent unfamiliarity with his readers can be easily explained. Ancient archaeological evidence has shown that Ephesus controlled a large network of outlying villages 
in rural areas up to 30 miles from the city. Also, Acts 19.10 reveals that reports of Paul's preaching during his stay at Ephesus had radiated out to, quote, all the residents of Asia. Hence, Paul would not have been personally acquainted with newer pockets of believers in the Ephesians in the Ephesian villages and rural farms that had sprung up since his stay in the city of New Year a few years before his writing of this letter. Finally, it would be extraordinarily odd for someone to write so forcefully that his readers should speak the truth and put away falsehood in a letter that was deceptively forging. Consequently, it can be affirmed with good confidence that Paul wrote Ephesians. Just want to get that out of the way. <laughs> that yes, indeed, Paul was the author of Ephesians. Okay, so now I'm going to kind of segue into what Warren Worsby's book has to say, and now we're going to actually start just a little bit, kind of like an intro. There's an introduction to this book. Uh, uh, there's a pastor, the name of Ken Baugh, B A U G H, he's a pastor in California, and he writes the forward or the intro to this book. In this, in this book, uh, Be Rich, basically, basically he breaks it down into um, contents here, verses, uh, excuse me, chapters 1 through 3. I was going to get the uh, right page here before I tell you this. Uh, has to do with doctrine. In other words, our riches in Christ. Right? And then chapters 4 through 6 has to do with our responsibilities. Of being in Christ. Um, but here's what the foreword has to say. Just as an intro into this. Over the past 20 years as a pastor, I have met a lot of very wealthy people. And if there's one thing I've learned, I have watched the rich and famous from the sidelines. It is that money doesn't buy happiness. Money doesn't bring peace or security. Money is here today and lost tomorrow. There's only one source of true wealth, only one means of lasting peace and security, and that is being in Christ. In fact, the big idea in Paul's letter, and this is kind of the main emphasis to the church in Ephesus, is that every Christian is rich in Christ. We have rich experiences in life, marriage, having kids, enjoying success, Other things. In Christ is the most frequently used phrase in the book of Ephesians. And the point is clear. If you're in Christ, you have everything. For example, Christians are, quote, saints in Christ. That's verse, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed in Christ, 1, 3. I won't keep repeating that, but you get the idea. Saints in Christ, blessed in Christ, Chosen in Christ, adopted by Christ, lavished with love in Christ, redeemed and forgiven in Christ, participants in God's good plan in Christ, glorified in Christ, sealed with the Holy Spirit, made alive in Christ, created in Christ, brought near to God in Christ, growing in Christ, built in Christ, these are all from Ephesians, and sharing in God's promise in Christ. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Get the picture? Everything in the universe is centered on Christ. That is exactly Paul's point. Every 
everything about Paul. And that's why I wanted to give you the history of him. Everything about Paul was preaching Christ. Nothing else. Nothing else existed for him. Everything was centered on preaching Christ. As a Christian, you are in Christ, and being in Christ simply means that you are part of the family of God. You're so wealthy, it makes a billionaire family seem like paupers. <laughs> have his comment there, right? So that's his whole point, if I want to bring uh, with, with Paul's background, is that he is, he in this, in this, this whole book in Ephesians, is going to be emphasis is, what are the riches that we have in Christ as believers? And they are many. So what are the benefits of this inheritance? Um, the author goes into a few of these, and I'm just going to mention a few. First of all, that we are part of God's family. Every believer, every believer becomes our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do we look at that way? When you come to church and sit down, you look at the cross, the crowd, if they are believers, do you look at them as brothers and sisters? Number two, we have a unique and intimate relationship with God. He's called Abba Father, our Father. One of the most intimate relationships you have on, as a human experience is with your parents. I think of my father in very intimate ways, what he meant to me and his, what he's done that makes me think so richly of him. Our Father in heaven is flawless. Our Father here on earth is not. How much more rich would it be with our Father in heaven? Point three, we are heir with Jesus to everything God owns. An heir, like an inheritance. My kids, sometimes my kids were little, they would misbehave. I'd say, I'm going I'm to subtract that off your inheritance. Didn't seem to work. Here's one. We have a privileged position that will continue into, inter- into eternity, into perpetuity, like never-ending. Revelations. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will, guarantee, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. His throne goes for eternity, right? So we are heirs of a kingdom that never ends. Number five, we will rule the nations with Christ during the millennial kingdom. That one's above my pay grade. That's, an, that's, a, that's ask one of our pastor's questions right there. But there's a point the author makes. And lastly, right here, and this is not controversial, I'll start with that. We cannot lose our inheritance. The book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of our salvation. So hearing the truth is very important. 
We have to hear the truth. The gospel of our salvation. And what did we do? We believed in him. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. A seal. Something that cannot break, right? Who is, and here's the key word, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of our glory. It's called before a deposit. The Holy Spirit is a deposit. So this is, this is what Paul is saying. And remember, all scripture is God breathed. Here's what Paul is saying. That if you heard the word of the truth and you responded, which is a miracle, it's God's doing, but you responded and you believed and you become what's called a believer, a born-again Christian, someone who pivots and turns and repents, has faith and repentance, and we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and you carry the Holy Spirit, that it becomes a guarantee of our inheritance, something you cannot lose. And it's, a, it's there until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, it is forever in a perpetuity. That is the hope that we as Christians have. We put hope in so many things in our life, an experience that we like and enjoy. And there's nothing wrong with my examples of experiencing some of the stuff that I talked about at the beginning of the hour. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But there's no hope in it. Hope is in Christ. It's eternity. It's in the perpetuity he guarantees this. The God who makes all, who is the uh, fulfiller of all promises of the Old Testament is the one who is guaranteeing this. And the Holy Spirit is that guarantee, our inheritance. You think about inheritance, it's about something you receive, right? Our inheritance, and that is our hope as we face death. Pastor Randy talked about death today. <laughs> His comment about the peculiar thing that secularity does is it just tries to erase all concepts of that, that it just disappears, that we have, we don't think about it, right? We're not going to talk about it. And here, we have great hope. Great hope. Um, I always ask, say the question sometimes in our, um, when I work with people, everyone wants to go to heaven without dying, <laughs> having a retirement fund without funding it, right? Stuff like that. Death is not to be feared here. Death is simply, if you're a believer in Christ, the hope that you have. Next week, I'm going to start into uh, chapter 1. And how fast it goes, I'm not sure exactly. I'm not the guy. I'm not Pastor Randy. I don't take one verse and talk three hours on it. I take 30 verses and talk five minutes on it. So that's, uh, we'll close in prayer.